0: Hey there! Thanks for tuning in to St John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church.
1: Uh, please follow along with me, either up on the screen or in the pew Bibles. The first reading is Psalm 30, and if you're looking in the uh, pew Bibles, it's on page 439. A psalm a song at the dedication of the Temple of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and did not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol, restored me to life from among those gone down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his faithful ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favour is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favour, O Lord, you had established me as a strong mountain. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The second reading is in Luke 24, and we're continuing uh, in that chapter from uh, verse 13. I'll back up to uh, verse 12, just where we finished off uh, previously. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Uh, Just the other day, I read what I think might be uh, the perfect description of the age uh, that we live in. We live in, uh, I read, we live in a post-optimistic world. Uh, The modern world from the 19th century onwards has been characterized by kind of optimism, I think it's fair to say, and especially the optimism that goes by the name of progress. The march of history is heading toward a better humanity and a better world, or or so we like to think. Optimism took a substantial blow, of course, after two world wars early in the 20th century, but somehow, amazingly, it didn't actually die out. Uh, Rapid uh, decreases in poverty and suffering around the world through the second half of the last century, along with the rapid expansion of national economies and wealth in the Western world, bolstered this kind of optimistic outlook of our culture. In such circumstances, it's very easy to conclude optimistically that, that somehow, even if we don't know exactly how, somehow everything will be all right. Things are heading in the right direction. But the events of the last 20 or so years, perhaps beginning with the uh, terror attacks of September 11, uh, have seen uh, optimism take a bit of a hit again, I think. Uh, The rise of authoritarian tyrants across the world, uh, what seems like an increase in extreme natural disasters, uh, deepening social and political divides, and a global pandemic to boot. All these contribute to a sense that maybe everything won't actually just automatically turn out okay after all. Perhaps worst of all, here in Australia, there's an election campaign happening. Uh, uh, Tomas Halleck, a Roman Catholic priest and theologian from the Czech Republic, uh, believes that you can use conversations held in the confessional, as they do in Roman Catholic churches, he believes that you can use the conversations held in the confessional as a kind of barometer of the mood of the culture. And he writes that he's observed a shift in mood, especially amongst younger people, from the optimism of the late 20th century to a kind of dull fatalism. I have no control over my future, and I expect very little good to come of it. Perhaps the frightening statistics of increases in depression and anxiety and other mental health struggles here in Australia and around the world amongst young people is a sign of the same kind of shift. We live in a post-optimistic world. It's hard to believe really anymore in the kind of sense of progress that things will just be okay. And so the options left to us are, on the one hand, the kind of dull fatalism uh, observed among young observers to the confessional, Or just kind of open conflict and sheer assertion of the rights and opinions and positions that we think are the right ones? You've got to ask the question, could we ever recover our optimism? I don't know, actually, whether whether we can or not. But here's something that I do know. Easter can move us beyond optimism. Easter, specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, can give us something even better than that swaggering confidence that somehow everything will turn out all right. Instead, what Easter can do is to give us a hope that endures even when things don't turn out right and the courage to live through it. We're going to see uh, exactly how that works as we reflect on the remarkable events of that first Easter day uh, as reported here for us in Luke chapter 24 that we've had read in its two parts across our morning together. We're going to see it in four different ways. First, we'll see Easter's claim. Secondly, Easter's controversy. Thirdly, Easter's centre. And lastly, Easter's courage. Easter's claim, Easter's controversy, Easter's centre and Easter's courage. Firstly, Easter's claim. Uh, The first reading we heard this morning uh, recounts that central fact at the heart of the Christian faith. The tomb was empty. Some of the women followers of Jesus turned up to take care of his dead body and when they get there, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb and they went in but they didn't find the body. They were understandably, Luke says, perhaps with some understatement, perplexed. And two angels appear to give them some clarity. They say Jesus isn't dead anymore, but indeed he has risen. It's really important to understand exactly what it is that's being claimed here. The actual flesh and blood Jesus, who three days earlier had died on a Roman cross and went into that tomb, is now alive and walking around somewhere in Palestine. Palestine. The Gospels present this very straightforwardly as an historical fact, so much so that the Apostle Paul can write in one of his letters that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. What's the significance of this astounding claim that Jesus really did rise bodily from the grave? There are three things to notice about it. Firstly, it means that death really has been defeated. Death seems to get all of us in the end, doesn't it? It's one of those things that's just a given... But if Jesus has been raised, then not even death has the final say. Death no longer has the ultimate power over us. Secondly, if this, if this really happened, if, if this claim is true, that Jesus rose bodily from the grave, then it means that sins really can be forgiven. Now, often, of course, we think of Jesus' death as dealing with sin and making forgiveness possible, but of course, that's only half the story. The agonising wrath of God that Jesus endured on the cross is God's ultimate no to sin, But if Jesus had stayed dead, then that no would have been God's last word on sin and on you and on me. Instead, God's no to sin on the cross is met with his yes to Jesus and with Jesus to all who have faith in him in the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we'd all still be destined to share that tomb that Jesus would still be in. Thirdly, because of God's forgiving yes in resurrection, those who throw themselves in with Jesus are destined not for the grave but for glory. And not, of course, for a disembodied harp playing, floating on the clouds kind of glory, but a real flesh and blood reality. The same body that died on that cross and was laid in the tomb, walked out of it again, made new and whole. And that means that the future for everyone who belongs to Jesus is the same, a flesh and blood body in a material reality, yet without any of the devastating and debilitating effects of sin and evil and death. That means, actually, in the end, what that really means is that you never have to worry about missing out, you see. That means you don't have to scramble to have the best of everything right here and right now before you drift off into the ether somewhere. You don't need to eke out the maximum benefit from every second of your life because you'll have all eternity to enjoy far better than the best available to us this side of resurrected glory. I said there were three things to notice, but that's because I was ad-libbing at that point. There's four, actually. Here's a fourth one for you. Fourthly, that flesh and blood future glory tells us that God is absolutely committed to this world in its wholeness. He's not merely interested in some kind of spiritual component of the world, not merely in your soul, if you like. He made all of this, the material as well as the spiritual, and he will remake it all just as Jesus' body has been remade. And that means that everything that happens in this world, in your bodies, all of it matters. It isn't to be escaped or avoided as though purely intellectual or meditative pursuits are qualitatively superior somehow to enjoying the sun and the surf and laughter with dear friends. And it can't be ignored either as though disease and poverty don't matter because they're merely physical obstacles to be transcended. Instead, life in its fullness matters in all its dimensions, love and justice and joy and community, these things matter. To create beauty and to care for the sick and to cultivate friendships and raise children and seek justice and to work hard. All of these have God's seal of approval and his guarantee for the future. That's the Easter claim, you see. That's what's been claimed here in the first part of Luke 24 by that empty tomb. Jesus is risen, a flesh and blood reality that forms the template for the future resurrection of all who trust in him and indeed for the whole world in its turn. Death does not have the last word. Sin has been forgiven. You have all the time in the world to enjoy what God has made and life really does have meaning and purpose. Huge, if true. But, of course, the Easter claim runs headlong into the Easter controversy, doesn't it? So the claim of Easter, the heart of the Christian message, is that Jesus, who died for the forgiveness of sins on Good Friday, was raised to new and undying life on Easter Sunday. And how is that great good news greeted by Jesus' own closest friends and followers? Well, with garden variety scepticism. To be sure, there's lots in the events reported here that are strange. I'm not saying any different. This is weird. This has never happened before, and it's never going to happen again in quite the same way until we all share in the resurrection glory with Jesus ourselves. To be sure, there's lots in the events reported here that are strange. But if you think about it, there's lots in this scene that's actually quite familiar to us as well. I mean, we know what's possible and what's not possible, don't we? Dead people stay dead. When they don't, it's a bit weird and a bit freaky. And so the report made by women, uh, the women of the empty tomb, uh, including the testimony of the angels that they meet there, it's all dismissed by the others they tell as an idle tale, Luke tells us. Perhaps a sad, grief-induced attempt to deny the terrible reality of Jesus' death by making up a story that makes it all feel better. Uh, the reason that this, I think, is, is so familiar to us in a sense is that the scepticism on display here is uh, kind of really very modern, don't you think? We can recognise ourselves in the response of these disciples. And typically enough for our own day as well, sadly, that the men just don't believe the testimony of the women, do they? doesn't seem that unusual either. There's been plenty of modern scepticism directed towards the events of that first Easter, and that, you see, would be no surprise to Luke and to the other Gospel writers. That's what happened back then as well. It's not as if these people who saw these things and wrote them down were primitive, simple people who just accepted the story of strangers wearing exceptionally well-laundered white robes. No, scepticism isn't a modern invention, and the Gospel writers don't shy away from it. Even Jesus' nearest and dearest responded to the empty tomb by saying, in effect, doesn't make sense, can't be true. That's the controversy of Easter. If the claim is to be accepted, then we have to be ready to accept as fact something that rational people like you and me have no rights to accept as true. But the difficulty with accepting the claim of Easter, that the problem with overcoming the controversy, goes beyond actually questions of intellect and rationality. And you see, it's Jesus himself here in Luke 24 who diagnoses the deeper problem, the problem of the centre, the real heart and centre of Easter. All of the four Gospels uh, gospels accept and report this scepticism from Jesus' followers. In John's Gospel, as you might remember, we have the familiar character of Doubting Thomas, uh, the scientific empiricist amongst Jesus' disciples who needs to see and touch the body of the risen Jesus to verify the testimony of the women and the rest of the disciples who'd seen Jesus by then. In Luke's Gospel, we get a different story. We get the report that we've just heard read of the two disciples walking the road to the town of Emmaus. Uh, Cleopas and his companion, probably his wife, actually. Uh, they're quite a tragic pair. Their hopes have been crushed. Their optimism has died with Jesus. And they, they stand there, Luke reports, looking sad as they recount the events of Good Friday to the stranger they meet on the road. Uh, as they report to him, the, the women uh, among their group have told them this astounding story about angels and about Jesus not being dead anymore but being alive, a story that the other disciples couldn't verify. They're so sure that the women's report must be merely an idle tale that they can't even recognize that the stranger they're telling this story to is the one who's risen himself, the Lord Jesus. They tell them that when the disciples went to check out the women's claim that the tomb was empty and they didn't see him there. And now these two on the road have the very evidence they were looking for. He's standing right there, they're looking at him with, the, with their eyes. But they can't see it, they can't recognize him. How is this possible? Jesus diagnoses the problem like this in verse 25. He says, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Something really interesting in Jesus' response there, I think. Notice what he says. He doesn't say how slow of mind. He doesn't say how devoid of reason. He says how slow of heart you are to believe. It's their hearts, you see, that are keeping them from seeing What are we to make of that? It's a a lovely evocative phrase, slowness of heart. I suspect that what Jesus is talking about is easier to understand as an experience than it is to kind of define exactly what it means. And I wonder if slowness of heart is something that you've experienced a little bit, actually, in these last two pandemic-inflicted years. The heart in the Bible is the very centre of a person. It's where your deepest desires, your loves, reside And it's those things actually that drive a person even more than the mind and the intellect does. Slowness of heart suggests desire that has become sluggish and lethargic, loves that have dimmed and grown cold. Slowness of heart is going to kill whatever optimism you might have had so that whatever the facts might be, it becomes impossible to believe that things really could be any different. A kind of fatalism descends and colours everything else. It's easy to imagine the travellers on the road feeling exactly like that. Their, Their hopes for Israel and for the world have come crashing down around them. They're disappointed and disillusioned and in pain. And you see, what Jesus knows and what all of us really know deep down is that these two despairing disciples, just like us, find that disappointment and disillusion and despair actually shape our recognition of the world around us far more deeply and profoundly than our rational intellect does. So I want to suggest to you, um, particularly if you're someone who stands with the sceptics in this story, who's who's not really convinced that Jesus actually rose from the dead about that central claim of the Christian faith, I want to suggest that it's worth asking the question, why is that? Why why is it that you're sceptical about this? And could it be that it isn't really actually in the end a question of intellect at all, not really a question of, but where's the evidence? Could it actually be this same slowness of heart? Perhaps you can't really imagine that something so good, so world-changing could actually be true. Maybe you have a sense that if it is true, it would ask a little bit too much of you, and so it's a bit easier if it's not. That's really worth pondering this Easter. Why is it that I stand with the sceptics, really? And, of course, if it really is about the evidence, if the barrier really is intellectual, then come and speak to me and we'll talk about the evidence. I'm happy to talk about that. But for many of us, I think it's this deeper issue, isn't it? The slowness of heart. Slowness of heart seems to be, on one level, a wonderfully kind and gentle diagnosis, but Jesus pairs it with something of a rebuke, doesn't he? How foolish you are, he says. These two are foolish in the sense that the shot of adrenaline that they need to get their hearts going again has been standing right in front of them all along. And not only that, but it's there in all that the prophets have declared, Jesus says. And so Jesus proceeds to give them the shot in the arm that they need. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Why is it that this is the remedy for their slowness of heart? The reason is that what's going on, that what they've failed to recognize, is the center of the story that they've lost, that they've missed. The one thing that actually gives coherence to the whole narrative and to the whole of life. What is that center? Jesus asked them, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? That's the centre, Jesus says, the suffering and crucified Messiah. You might remember from your high school days, or those of you who are in high school now, you might have this ready to look forward to. You might remember this famous poem by William Yeats called The Second Coming. It's been called the most quoted poem in the English language and it's because really, to be honest, every line is quotable. Uh, but here's a couple of lines that, that I've always found actually quite moving and compelling. Yeats writes, Things fall apart. The centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Uh, Yeats wrote that poem in the aftermath of the First World War, uh, while revolutions were underway in Russia and in Ireland, and in the midst of a pandemic. The Spanish flu was uh, burning through Europe when he wrote this poem. Uh, in fact, it nearly killed his wife, who contracted it while she was pregnant with their daughter. Things fall apart, violence and pestilence. Does that seem familiar to anyone at all? Perhaps a pandemic and conflicts around the world? And as things fall apart, the the very centre seems to drop out of reality so that what's left is anarchy. Nothing makes sense anymore. After Donald Trump was elected uh, President of the United States, uh, uh, the Wall Street Journal declared that 2016 was the year of W.B. Yates because of this poem. reporting research that found that phrases from this poem had turned up in the press more times than in any other year for the past three decades. Something apparently is resonating in our culture about these words, and that was even before COVID. You see, when things seem to be falling apart, the the centre that gives coherence to our grasp on reality and provides a sense of meaning to our experience can quickly give way, can't it? Jesus suggests that that's what's happening for these two disciples on the road. Mere anarchy now taking the place of all the hopes they'd pinned on Jesus. But in reality, of course, in their grief, in their slowness of heart, they'd missed the centre of it all. They expected Jesus to arrive in Jerusalem as a conquering hero to drive the Romans out, not to die. But Jesus shows them that the Messiah was always going to suffer and die and that it's through suffering and death that he would defeat not just the relatively pathetic and puny Roman Empire, but death itself. That's the very heart of the Scriptures, Jesus says, the centre that holds the whole story together. This divinely uh, inspired and authorised story of God and his world in the Scriptures, the story of everything, Jesus says, my life and death and new life in resurrection is the heart, the centre of that story. It's what gives the story of the whole cosmos its power and coherence and meaning. And though for just a moment it looked like everything had fallen apart and the centre wouldn't hold, What had fallen in death was remade and proved strong enough to hold out even against the powers of death and hell. What Jesus is telling those two disciples, and what he's telling us in his word to us today as well, is that his death and resurrection are the missing center of reality, both personal and cosmic reality. That it's only when he's at the center that the rest of reality really begins to make sense. You can see now, can't you, why this is a matter of the heart, first and foremost, not a matter of the intellect. The resurrection isn't a factoid that has to be reconciled with all the other facts and knowledge that you have. It's not a matter of skepticism versus wishful thinking. As one theologian puts it, the resurrection is a hole punched in the logic of facts. It upends and reconfigures all of the rest of reality around it. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the the author of the Narnia novels, probably the 20th century's greatest defender of the Christian faith, uh, he put it like this. He wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. You see, the suffering, dying and rising of Jesus is the light that illuminates the whole of reality. That's the claim here, that this crucified and risen king is at the centre of everything and that that actually is what's going to make sense of the whole of life and bring purpose and meaning to everything. That's what makes sense of the inclination we have that human beings have an undeniable dignity paired with an indescribable propensity for violence. It makes sense of the conviction that love is worth fighting for and that evil is worth fighting against. It makes sense of the nobility that we see in suffering and generosity for the needs of others. Having Jesus at the centre illuminates our yearning for beauty and justice and justifies our grief over the ugliness of a world that waits to be remade just as he has been remade. All of these things make sense because they align with the one who stands at the very centre of reality. And what's the effect when this Jesus, crucified and risen, is recognised for who he is, recognised as the centre of reality? There's a change of heart. We get to watch it happen and unfold in this beautiful narrative that Luke tells in this chapter, in his conversation with his two disciples on the road. Those who are weighed down by their slowness of heart after spending the day with the risen Jesus in probably the world's best ever Bible study and sitting down to a meal together, Having been weighed down by slowness of heart, they can say to one another after they've recognised Jesus, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? You see, they discovered that the centre of the story, the centre of reality, the shot of adrenaline they needed to get their hearts going again, it was right there in Jesus all along. And so as their hearts began to beat again, with the centre of the story back in place, They discovered Easter courage. And that's the last thing that I want to talk to you about this morning. We've heard Easter's claim, Easter's controversy, Easter's centre. What does all of that mean for for you and me, not only in terms of cosmic realities, but in terms of our own personal realities as well? In short, you see, Easter can rescue you from slowness of heart and make your heart burn again. And that will give you tremendous courage. Why? Well, the headline, Jesus is alive! His resurrection isn't just a happy ending or a wonderful reversal of fortune. It's much more than that. It's the ultimate proof that life is stronger than death, that goodness is more enduring than evil, that despair is a passing shadow compared to the solid flesh and blood reality of hope in him. And if the one who stands at the centre of reality becomes the centre of your own heart and life, you see, he can move beyond a mere optimism, Because Jesus is alive, you can get past the vague sense that somehow everything will be all right and instead be able to begin uh, to reinterpret even those things that do go wrong in the light of Jesus' own death and resurrection. Because whatever we endure, even death itself, we know that the one at the centre of all things has been there before us and stays there with us. And he promises to take us with him to where he now is in resurrected glory. Not even death can close us off from the life that Jesus now lives and holds out to you and me. That's what the Bible means when it talks about hope, and it's far more powerful than optimism. Optimism is so easily broken by unexpected or unrelenting circumstances. It so easily dims and fades. But resurrection hope, you see, is courageous because disappointments can't derail this hope because the one who was broken for our sins now lives forever and calls us to follow him. That's the Jesus, this this one, the crucified and risen one at the centre of all reality. That's the Jesus who these two uh, companions on the road recognise and they recognise him, Luke tells us, in the breaking of bread. Uh, A defining feature, you see, of Jesus' earthly ministry was uh, the meals that he shared with his followers and uh, actually often with all the wrong people. Uh, According to the elites of Jesus' day, uh, he constantly broke bread with sinners and that made him suspect. Good for us, sinners as we are. It was so characteristic of Jesus to eat with those he loved that as he blesses and breaks the bread, his followers finally recognise him. Just days before he'd broken bread uh, there with them in Emmaus, of course, he shared a meal with his own disciples, his closest, the 12, and he made that meal central to his own description of his purpose and his life. His body, he said, would be broken and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of many to be consumed in the heart as that bread and wine was consumed in their meal together. And so he commanded those who love him to remember him by sharing in that meal, and that's what we're going to do together at the Lord's table in just a few moments' time. And so as you come to the Lord's table today, will you recognize Jesus there? Will you see that his risen body is just as real as the bread that you'll chew and swallow, that his bread, even, uh, that His blood rather, even now pumps through his arteries just like the wine that you drink will enter yours? Because of that resurrection reality, because the one who gave his body and blood for you is now alive and lives forever, you can feed on him in your heart by faith. And as you do, he will kindle in you a burning hope that can never be put out and give you a courage that can face anything. That's what Easter is all about. That's what the courage, the controversy, the centre of Easter, the courage that it brings to you, that's what it's all about. So you can live as Jesus has lived, even in a world like ours as we wait for the resurrection to come. Let's pray that our God would enable us to do just that. Our Father, we give you uh, such tremendous thanks and praise. We're we're amazed and perplexed in so many ways, just like those who met the Lord Jesus on that Easter day by the sheer mind-blowing reality of the Lord Jesus risen bodily from the grave. Father, this claim means everything to us and for our world. This claim changes everything this claim gives meaning and purpose. This claim can rekindle our slow hearts. Because Jesus is alive, we know that we can walk forward in courage, that this world you've made matters to you, that nothing can separate us from your love. And so, Father, continue to drive deep into our hearts a firm trust in the reality of our flesh and blood, Lord, who sits now at your right hand and reigns in glory. Father, we long to see him again when he returns to resurrect all who trust in him in just the same way and to usher in an era peace and justice and beauty and love without sin and evil and death. We thank you, Father, for this sign you've given us in his resurrection, that that day will come. And so, Father, help us to walk in courage and confidence as we follow after him. We ask this in the power of your spirit, for your glory, in the name of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. Amen.